0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning.
1: So, this is the third installment in our series on watchmaking, a book written by George Daniels. And we are still just in the introductory chapter. We're all the way to page four now. And I'm uh, going <laughs> to kick things off with drawing.
0: Yeah, I think at the uh, pace we're going with this, John, I think it's going to take us uh, probably a hundred years to get through this book. So some of this we may have to uh, move through at a faster pace.
1: I might have a nice gray beard by the end of this.
0: (laughs) So the next section of uh, chapter one that we want to discuss is about drawing. And uh, Daniel spends a fair bit of time in all of his books actually discussing drawing Uh, manually on paper. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about what uh, his method is for drawing out movements?
1: I think before we dive into method, that's more the the mentality or or reasoning behind why. Uh, And I think it is essentially just that it allows you to reason or think things through much more clearly in a way that simply Working on a watch does not. So your typical watchmaker these days, quote-unquote watchmaker, who's just putting pieces together, isn't familiar with why things are the way that they are. The various angles and measurements and criteria that went into making all these individual components and the way that they act amongst one another. And the act of actually drafting a component whether this is by hand on a piece of paper or in a CAD model on a computer, and actually working out all those bits and pieces forces you to think about the actions that are happening and take a much more detailed approach to things and to think about things very holistically. And you have to understand absolutely everything that's taking place at a very deep level and not just a superficial level. And I think that's one of the big reasons that Daniels really pushes or promotes the idea of learning drafting uh, as a skill, because it is a skill. It's Mm -hmm. not something like just laying down drawings on a piece of paper. To draft well requires a certain degree of of training or learnedness. So whether you're self-taught or having taken a course to to perform these actions. And Daniels is not Alone in this, a lot of the best watchmaking instructors over the years felt very similarly. Uh, the very first watchmaking school that ever opened up in North America was uh, in Prairie, actually. I think they moved to Prairie later in uh, Illinois. There, um, it was the Laporte School of Watchmakers and that opened way back in 1886, and that was followed just four years later by the Canadian Horological Institute in 1890 and the founder of the Canadian Horological Institute was a gentleman named Henry Plaitner and he was very much a proponent of ensuring that his students knew how to draft how to draw the components of a watch and that they had a very thorough understanding of exactly how everything operated and his reasoning was very similar to Daniels' That's the same for just about any watchmaker or watchmaking instructor who has has pushed this, this mentality. Because if you don't understand the underlying concepts behind why a certain component was made the way that it was, then you can't properly address issues. Or you may try to address an issue, but you're not actually addressing the root cause. You're addressing symptoms. and and not actually getting to the root issues. And and that can just cause further problems down the line.
0: Although one of the uh, commonalities amongst all of those people, uh, both uh, the early watch schools in North America and Daniels, uh, a lot of their focus would have been on being able to make your own components to repair watches or to build watches initially. Uh, Back in the late 1800s, we didn't have drop-in components for watches. You couldn't uh, order a new balance wheel and staff, for instance, for your watch. You you had to, if you needed to replace that, you had to be able to make it. So being able to understand the dimensions and uh, being able to design a lot of these components would have been more important to somebody 130 years ago uh, than it is today, where a lot of modern watches, you can just drop in replacement parts and not have to build them yourself. And then in the case of Daniel's, his goal was to be able to make his own watches. So he could have been working on watches with drop-in replacement parts, but he chose to make his watches himself. So certainly in both cases, there is a, a higher than average need to be able to design and actually draw these components yourself.
1: Mm, yeah, if you're making a piece from the ground up, you... Really do need to have those fundamental understandings of, of how things work. And something that was neat for me, going back and reading this portion of, of Daniel's text, when he does get into some of the methodology about the small pinpricks you make on the the paper, and, and perhaps using an onion skin paper over top to do work out your rough lines on the back first before transferring things over to the front, and, and getting your, your compass divided just so so you can do a, a full circumnavigation of uh, the the circumference of a circle before you you divide it up to make sure that all the teeth are are perfectly spaced. Uh, I've had recently the the chance to actually examine some drawings, some original drawings that were done by students at the Canadian Horological Institute more than 100 years ago. And these are, are massive drawings, and they're inked, not with a a ballpoint pen, like what we may be used to today, but and not even a fountain pen, but more in the vein of something like a fountain pen, and seeing how finally they've been able to create these masterpieces, really of draughtsmanship, and doing that uh, was was really remarkable. And some of them went on to color their their drawings as well, just using say watercolors or perhaps a gouache, and seeing the pinpricks on their giraffes was was really neat to take in as well. And um, by and large, I would, I would say drafting in the sense that Daniels addresses it and in the, the sense uh, that it was taught at these older schools. Uh, it's worth noting, too, that Hedry Platner eventually went on to found or play a large part in founding the Elgin Watchmaking School down in the United States. Uh, so it hit the ramifications of his teaching went on to, to spread far and wide across North America. And he also was pushing quite hard drafting and, and draftsmanship in early parts of the program there at the Elgin School too. Uh, but to actually see all these these drawings was, was quite neat. And one, in, if, if you are to, to actually draw something out, maybe make a paper model, one of the tips that uh, I think was quite, a nice one from Daniels here in the book is that when you want to draw a straight line or a very accurate line, and you want to have your spacings all very accurate, is to actually set your, your pinpricks in the paper and put your pencil in the pinprick and then draw the ruler up to the edge of the pencil before drawing the line rather than moving your ruler into place and then attempting to draw the line. Just subtle little things like that when you're trying to do a really precise drawing where Every angle, every length matters. Being able to lay out those little cues or, or helpers through these pinpricks in the paper with a compass are, are valuable measures.
0: I think it's important to distinguish that what Daniels is calling drawing today, we would properly call drafting. Drawing is something that, you know, we today sort of think of as being something a little bit less technical and less precise. Um, so when it comes to drafting itself, uh, the methods that Daniels is talking about are all classic drafting techniques. Um, I, I've taken drafting through school, and and have been sort of doing drafting uh, for you know maybe the last thirty years now, thanks to uh, picking it up in school. And all of the techniques that he's talking about using pinpricks, pricks, using a compass to be able to figure out exact uh, lengths. Later on, he talks a little bit about how to lay out perpendicular lines, how to lay out parallel lines. These are all techniques that are are pretty common to anybody who's learned manual drafting skills. They can be certainly worthwhile learning, but you know I think that the information that he's giving in this book is more interesting from a historical context. I think if you are going to sit down today and start seriously thinking about making uh, your own movement, I think at this point you're better off working with modern drafting methods which means using a cad system as mm-hmm. opposed to manual drafting which is what he's talking about
1: yeah, i agree completely and that's not to write off drawing completely or even the the skill of drafting i think it's worthwhile having that foundational knowledge and especially the the trigonometry and basic algebra and all that sort of stuff they have to do to actually lay out everything nicely knowing those concepts is, is hmm. valuable and will pay dividends
0: yeah i think having a basic understanding of of how to do manual drafting is is worthwhile the problem that i find with with this unless you, this is something that you do a lot and especially unless this is something that you've learned rigorously the actual skill of drafting is something that's going to take a significant amount of your mental energy as you're working uh, it's also very easy to make mistakes and the biggest issue with doing manual drafting is that any mistake that you make really means that you start back from scratch and you start working on it again. Dealing with the level of accuracy that we're talking about here, uh, you certainly would need to start a, start your drawing again before you could sort of correct a mistake. Um, so that that's where I think the the real downside today of of manual drafting comes in. It's just something that, unless you've done a lot of, and even myself, I've done a lot of manual drafting over the years. And other than, you know, maybe quick sketches of, of a couple little things, I would never seriously consider doing any any uh, accurate work with drafting these days. It's just too time consuming, and um, there are just too many other benefits to to modern drafting these days.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree with that, and I also absolutely agree with just the drawing side of things, um, just to sketch out initial ideas. It can be, pay some pretty big dividends roughing things out on, on paper or a whiteboard before actually sitting down in front of a computer and, and diving into to CAT. Because you can very quickly or too quickly get lost in the, the mire of the details without having taken a 50,000-fit a view beforehand of Absolutely. how everything's going to, to operate together.
0: And that's why I think that the the difference between drawing and drafting is important because I Mm -hmm. do a significant amount of drawing these days. And I actually do a lot more drawing these days than I used to and significantly less drafting by hand. And the drawing is where I am doing the sketches. I'm able to sit down and say, all right, what are the rough placement of the different components in this um, drivetrain, for instance, or uh, where are the parts of this movement going to to be located in the case, or what does the case look like, or what does the the dial look like, roughly. So I do a lot of manual drawing these days, and everything that I do, even though it'll eventually end up as a 3D model, starts as some kind of a manual drawing. But those drawings are very rough and very quick, and, you know, again, as you say, they're sort of a 50,000-foot view, and they allow me to Rough out ideas first, so that I'm I don't need to work on the details uh, before I'm I'm doing it. But I, I very consciously don't put details in those drawings. Uh, they're they're entirely to sort of work around the problem and try and figure out exactly where things are going to go before I sit down and start working on the specifics of something.
1: And the other thing that is noteworthy too about working in this manner, just drawing freehand, uh, is that it exercises a very Different portion of your brain, not just exercises it, but it activates it. And it's a very different act working physically this way. Now, that line is also starting to be blurred a little bit with, say, the Apple iPad and the Apple Pencil, because you can actually physically draw and manipulate right there on the screen in a way that simply wasn't possible using a computer monitor and a mouse or even a a Wacom tablet, the responsiveness wasn't quite the same. But I mean, the new iPads, iOS 13, were dropping the refresh rate down to nine milliseconds. It's it's crazy. Uh, But this portion of of Daniel's book, having gone back and and reread it, actually called to mind for me too, Dieter Ramps. And the fact that he brought over this design process of working on these large rolls of, of onion skin paper, it's basically a translucent paper that makes it very easy to, to trace over the drawings you've already done. Very quick sketches allow you to rapidly iterate on a sketch or overlay different components. And, and he brought that from the architectural world over to design at Brown. And uh, another uh, anecdote I, I came across relatively Recently, via Hodinke, uh was about uh, the the George Nelson ball clock, which it turns out apparently might not have even been designed by George Nelson. Uh, but there's this, this anecdote uh, there. We'll we'll link to the the article about uh, him throwing back some drinks one night alongside Buckminster Fuller and Irving Harper and isama Noguchi, who's I love Noguchi's triangular table. Just as an aside. Uh, I don't know, apparently, it may even have been Noguchi who sketched the the Nelson ball clock. Uh, but they were doing the very similar sort of thing that, that Rams alluded to and, and just drawing on these large architectural mm. papers and this translucent tracing paper and just throwing ideas around and, and just quickly coming up with uh, a general ideas and, and concepts and, and riffing off of one another. And uh, there's something to be said about that process of, of just being able to, to draw either on your own or amongst friends like that or colleagues.
0: And again, those, those things can be done. I think these days, those, those things can actually be done better on an iPad because you can easily layer and, and uh, see what's going on and then, you know, be able to actually manipulate the thing that you're, that you're drawing and you're still drawing digitally. So I think there's advantages to doing it there instead of on paper, if, if that's what you can do. But again, that that all goes to drawing as opposed to uh, actual drafting, which is uh, which you know really is the focus of what uh, of what Daniels is talking about. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to modern drafting, as I've said, I think that anybody who's who's going to take this seriously and is interested in in doing this seriously really should be considering doing this as a, a drafting exercise on a computer, and that means using some sort of a CAD program. Uh, these days I think Fusion three sixty is sort of the the CAD program of choice for most people. Uh primarily because if you're not doing this professionally, if you're or even if you are doing this professionally but not making a lot of money at this, uh you can get a copy of Fusion three sixty for free. And uh you can use it for free without any issue. And even if you do need to pay for it, the cost of it is is relatively low. It's a couple of hundred dollars a year. Uh, if you need to to actually pay for it, uh, but from uh, a designer's point of view, it has a few significant advantages that manual drawing will just or manual drafting will just never be able to do. Uh, the The principal one is the fact that it's a parametric modeler. And when we talk about a parametric modeler, uh, what we're talking about is is a set of drawings that are driven by the dimensions that you put into it and those dimensions can be changed at any time to modify the drawing without needing to redraw it from scratch so this is important when especially early on when you're designing let's say you're designing two gears that need to work together uh, you're not going to get those uh dimensions right the first time you're going to make mistakes, you're going to find out that something works a little bit better this way versus that way. And with parametric modeling, it's trivial to be able to change the dimensions of something, change the number of teeth that happen to be on a wheel, uh, change the distances between a wheel and a pinion, uh, so you can adjust the engagement between them. Uh, there's a lot of things that parametric modeling allows you to do very quickly. Uh, which is something that would, is non-trivial to do if you're trying to do it manually. Uh, the other advantage of parametric modeling is that you're also able to use, uh, equations in your dimensions. So things like the, um, the size of teeth, the diameter of a wheel, uh, all of those are things which can be generated, um, uh, automatically based on a certain set of of information that you give the computer and thanks to that that uh, sort of power it allows you to very quickly generate things that are the correct size uh, and if there's something that's off because again you decide you want to change a gear ratio or something it's very quick for you to be able to change that back you know to be able to modify it again and change it into something different and then if you want to be able to see what this looks like in, in the real world, uh, one of the things Daniel suggests is doing things at, at 10x so that your your drawings are easy to look at and you can easily see how these different uh, items interact with each other. Uh, you can then print these out at large scale, uh, whether you have a printer yourself that you can print them out on or you can uh, you know, go to a print shop and, and have them printed out easily. Uh, as you were saying earlier to me, off-air, you can use something like a cricket to be able to actually cut these parts out, and you can then see how these parts interact with each other. But the fact that you're doing all of that modeling initially in CAD, and that you can very easily make changes to dimensions, uh, that's where the true power of this comes in. It's not so much that you can do it accurately or you can do it faster uh, initially, it's that you can... Base dimensions on other things which are critical to the uh, operation of something or the you know the the way that something's designed, and uh, and be able to make changes to it very quickly. That that's really where the power of these uh, CAD systems come in.
1: Mm-hmm. Being able to actually have components cut out of paper on say a cricket or a silhouette uh, makes prototyping quite quick or even. Using a laser cutter to do the same thing, if you happen to have access to one of those, you can very quickly go from an idea on screen to a cardboard prototype in less than a minute with a laser cutter. It's, they're so fast. Uh, the crickets a little slower and not quite as precise. I mean, you have to do some some picking and some plucking sometimes, uh, but it is all still still much faster than physically cutting out uh, say a gear or an opinion and and making the two interact with one another
0: yeah if you're doing this if you're cutting this stuff out manually there's always the chance that you're going to make mistakes with it and Mm -hmm. um, and you don't know if the problem with the interaction of the objects is because you made a mistake when you were drawing it you don't know if it's because you made a mistake when you were cutting it and that's where you know doing this stuff manually when you when that's something you have to focus on, it's it's a real
1: challenge. And if you have a 3D printer, you can also just print yeah flat parts on your your 3D printer, which is something I've I've done as well. You just take an export of a vector that you've you've done up or DXF file, and throw it in something like OpenSCAD, extrude it, and then toss it in your 3D printing program of choice, slice it up, and and output it, and you can play with things that way as well. And this is a way that a lot of watchmakers have worked over the years, and professional watch designers in big watch companies work in this manner, too, with just models that are very quickly prototyped at a larger scale, and just to very quickly diagnose problems and, and see how components interact with one another. Uh, another fantastic watchmaker who is also, like Daniels, sadly no longer with us, who is a big Proponent of making paper models of the complications that he designed was Derek Pratt. And it's nice to be able to find faults in things when it's not expensive in terms of the material yeah. or the time. Being able to prototype in paper or cardboard or an inexpensive plastic as opposed to metal, it's a no brainer. Just do it. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, uh, if you're talking today about a large companies designing watches, when you start getting into a a Patek Philippe or somebody like that, uh, they're actually starting to use SolidWorks now for all of that design work because now they don't actually have to produce physical models to be able to judge interactions of parts. Uh, The physics engines that are built into SolidWorks now allow them to do various analysis of the movements and so they can start to Figure out all of the faults with a movement long before anything ever gets produced physically. So they don't even need to create physical models now to to be able to figure out most of the problems with it, and to figure out things like um, power requirements and whatnot of a gear train. Uh, that can all be done inside of SolidWorks. It can, uh, you know, find your faults for you basically. Uh, and uh, it's it's pretty impressive what what applications like that are able to do now for for people like me who are. You know, working on a smaller scale, I, I don't need something like SolidWorks, which is significantly more expensive than Fusion. Uh, I'm not, you know, I I, I would rather three D model something and then print it out, for instance, and um, and try the parts together like that, than um, than worry about spending, you know, ten plus thousand dollars or whatever on on SolidWorks to be able to uh, to do it in the inside of the virtual world. But for people who are designing this these things at a at a higher volume or more complexity, then uh, that sort of thing becomes important.
1: Another popular application. I I, sh- I don't know how popular, but I have spoken to design engineers at other big Swiss brands. And they also use Creo, which not only allows you to simulate this sort of stuff, but they've actually branched out into augmented reality now too. So you can actually throw in something like a, a HoloLens or an Oculus Rift and interact with the models in full three dimensions and be able to walk around that. Or even on your phone or an iPad now, I don't know for certain that that Creo works that way yet, but you can interact in in three dimensions virtually and very quickly get an idea of, of how things are operating. Uh, Creo was previously pro-engineer, so years and years ago. There's all sorts of solutions on the market. There's another piece of, of software for for simulating things like springs that the name isn't coming to me off the the top of my head because it's of course a very engineering sort of name uh but if i i happen to remember between now and when this goes live i will be sure to put that in the show notes too
0: i think that it's incredibly important to model these things and uh it gives you a chance to figure out problems before you actually start making them but i think these days if you want to do this seriously uh, you really do need to start looking at this as a as a 3D modeling exercise, and mm-hmm. uh, try working in something like Fusion to uh, to do it. And this is somewhere where you know we've we've spoken before about some of the 3D CAD programs I've used over the years. And I've been a a fan of Rhino 3D for a lot of the work that I do. Uh, it is entirely inappropriate for this kind of work, uh, this kind of Agreed. sort of mechanical work, uh, just because it is not a parametric modeler. So anything that you do, if you, if you make a mistake in the dimension of something, you really need to go back and rebuild it from scratch, which is incredibly frustrating when you're dealing with something technical like this where those dimensions are extremely important. It's less of an issue if you're dealing with something sort of more artistic and flowing, something like some of my pen designs where it's it's really not critical that a particular curve is absolutely perfect. Yeah, it is important that uh, if you're going to look at 3D modeling, uh, look at something that's appropriate for what it is that you're doing. And in this case, something like Fusion 360 is, is absolutely perfect for this.
1: Yeah, Rhino 3 d is certainly has its place in hashing out the aesthetics of a design because there are some niceties within it that uh, make that process easier than the sort of designs you'd be able to achieve in, in something like, say, SolidWorks or Fusion 360.
0: Yeah, although even that's getting, uh, those lines are blurring significantly as well. Uh, Fusion 360 is is improving quite a bit and the the two things that I used to worry about missing a lot from Rhino were the sweep tools that Rhino had, and and the lofting tools, that kind of thing. And then uh, also the flow along surface. And at this point, the sweep loft tools in Fusion 360 are just as good as they were in Rhino. Really, at this point, the only thing that I'm missing is the the flow along surface. If uh, Fusion could uh, get a flow along surface command, I would drop using Rhino 100%. I would never need to use it anymore.
1: I think that's Part of the benefit or part of the way that Fusion 360 has been benefiting from being as open and available as it is, is they have such a broad user base that they're receiving feedback from and we're really pushing the edges of the product and the various use cases that it's, as you've mentioned, it's become incredibly powerful and full-featured. I mean, you can even just, you can send components from fusion 360 now directly to have manufactured on a cnc machine
0: yeah yeah you don't have to do any of that work yourself anymore if you don't want to and then it also has all their cam features built into it and which is incredibly powerful the nice thing is that uh, autodesk who creates fusion 360 they also create more professional packages than this. A lot of the features in Fusion 360 are actually trickling down from Inventor, which is their higher-end package, which is more similar to something like Creo or SolidWorks. And same thing with their CAM tools. They actually have a high-end CAM application. And a lot of those features are trickling down from there into Fusion 360. So there's a a real blurring of the high-end professional packages and this sort of low-end consumer-grade or prosumer-grade package in Fusion 360. So it, it is nice to see that happening. And as you said, the the community in Fusion 360 is very significant and very vocal, and they are listening to the uh, the requests for updates and, and changes to the system. So uh, that's it's a worthwhile application to learn just because it does have a lot of uh, growth potential. And um, I think we're going to see significant changes with it over the next couple of years that will allow us to do uh, do more interesting things with this. For those of you who don't have any familiarity with using a CAD package, uh, and in particular using Fusion 360, it is very, very easy to find resources these days on learning how to use that package. As I said, it, it is free for you if you want to start playing around with Fusion 360, uh, especially if you're an amateur and you're just playing around with it or if you're not making very much money from it. Uh, So that's inexpensive. You can get it for free. If you want to learn how to use it, there are some great video resources. YouTube in particular has some good uh, resources. You can find excellent information on uh, the NYC CNC YouTube channel. John Saunders has been making videos specifically with Fusion 360 tutorials for a number of years. So there are scores of videos up there that you can find uh, talking about it. Uh, The other channel I recommend that we'll link to is Lars Christensen. He has some outstanding tutorials for Fusion 360. That's all he talks about. And he has hundreds of videos up on his uh, channel uh, talking about specifics of how to do things. He'll also often answer questions and show how to do specific things if listeners are trying to, are, are having a difficult time trying to figure something out. And he'll help figure that out. And then. The third place to go is the Fusion 360 forums. Uh, Not only are they a great place to give feedback to Autodesk in terms of adding features and whatnot in there, but also it's a great place to ask questions. And Autodesk themselves have created a number of great video resources and tutorial sites inside of their forums that that are worthwhile doing. In fact, I believe they've built in a screen capture utility inside of Fusion. So that it's easy for people to make tutorials on how to use Fusion. That's one of the big advantages of it. Uh, You don't have to have separate screen capture software. There's actually software built into Fusion to be able to capture exactly what it is that you're doing, which makes it very, very easy for you people to share how to do things, which has then been advantageous in sharing how to do different things and, you know, and creating tutorials for this. So a lot of good reasons to to recommend fusion but the biggest is the um the fact that it's very easy to find resources on how to learn this stuff
1: there's some great tips there chris thank you for those i hope they prove to be a benefit to any listeners out there who are just getting started with cad or, or thinking of dipping their their toes into it cuz it is such a a valuable tool to have in one's arsenal and if for some reason a form of rapid prototyping tool is is not readily Available to you, or you're not able to get access to a a makerspace. Large format engineering prints tend to be very quick to get because engineers will often need things quickly and they're not that expensive. Just a a couple of dollars at, say, your local Staples or Business Depot or or other businessy type store like that that offers print services. Uh, They will more often than not have a, a large format printer on site that is dedicated purely to engineering and architectural drawings. So I've, I've made use of that uh, a number of times in the past and been really impressed at just how quickly the turnaround time is and, and how cheap it is. Back to the the classic hand-drawn, hand-drafted technical drawings for, for one final moment. I think it's worth drawing attention to and calling out the work of David Penny here in Daniel's book uh, because the drawings in the book all the technical illustrations were done predominantly by David Penny and not by Daniels himself, and these drawings communicate a lot, and they give the book a certain level of charm that I don't think you would get from renders that you would you'd pull out of a CAD program. Uh, so there's there's that to, to speak to, to technical drawings as well. Now, I'm sure there's probably filters or something out there to be able to get renders that look like technical drawings in this sense, uh, but... The amount of work that David must have put into Daniel's book and in, in producing all these illustrations for it is is remarkable and noteworthy.
0: Yeah, Penny was responsible for doing the technical drawings in all of Daniel's books, if I remember correctly, and uh, they are gorgeous. They are uh, incredibly illustrative. And while it certainly is possible these days to create these drawings using a, a CAD program, Uh, These were all done by hand, and uh, they must have taken a significant amount of time and effort on Penny's part to be able to create. And they do look gorgeous. And and I do know that uh, a few people have continued on the tradition of doing this kind of thing. Craig Struthers has created a sort of similar feeling technical drawing of their new watch that they're working on, their 248 uh, project. And again, it's beautiful. It's an incredible piece of art. And uh, I think you can order prints of that off of their website as well. And it's worth owning just as a piece of art. Um, so there, there certainly is a time and a place for that kind of skill. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to diminish the work that uh, people like Penny did on, uh, in his drawings for this book because uh, they are absolutely remarkable. Now, tucked into this chapter is a section on visual aids. And, and it's not a very large part of this, this chapter. It's uh, less than a page in length it is worth calling out some details about visual aids because it is something that as watchmakers, no matter how young you are and how good your eyes are, you do need some kind of optics to help you work and to make it more comfortable to work. So what do you, what do you use in your sort of day-to-day watchmaking?
1: So focal distance is really key because you want to make sure you have enough room to actually work uh, between the loop and what you're working on you want to be comfortable essentially and and you want and comfortable in the sense of, of both keeping your eyes comfortable and, and also keeping your posture comfortable as for the most part i use a two and a half power loop made by asco and that is by and large what i'm working with throughout the day uh, one way you can really quickly check for any distortions and whatnot in a loop it, if you're looking at buying one and are able to handle it physically before putting the money down for it. to uh, so just take a razor blade and run it perpendicularly down in in front of the loop. And if you see any sort of curve happening in the blade, uh, you'll sort of see it warp as it comes from the the bottom up through the center and off the top, or vice versa. And then that's more than likely going to cause you some degree of eye strain and, and discomfort when used for a long period of time. So you want to get a loop that minimizes any of that sort of distortion. Uh, you want to eliminate uh, any sort of chromatic aberration as well, and just just have something that sits comfortably uh, within the eye, or if you're wearing glasses, something that, that flips down in front of your eye. Uh, Daniel's was quite famous for having a custom made loop set for his eyeglasses that came down from the center of his, his glasses. Um, I've tried this, and can't say I'm particularly a fan, although I'm nearsighted, so I actually don't bother wearing glasses when I'm at the bench. My my whole world for the day is right there in front of me, and I can see everything just fine. So I just wear a loop with uncorrected vision. And uh, if I'm out on a hike or or driving or something like that, then I'll I'll throw on glasses or or contact lenses. That's another thing, too. I, I don't particularly find it's comfortable to have contact lenses on all day with, with the loop, but that's my personal preference. Your mileage may vary. I think some of that comes down to the fact, too, that I'm I'm nearsighted, so I don't need what the contact lenses are offering me throughout the, the course of the day. So they actually tend to introduce some eye strain and, and unnecessary irritation that I could do without. So I just wear the, the loop. And then for working with the escapement, I like to jump to an 8 or a 10x. So I've got a couple of different loops at my disposal there. And then for any sort of inspection work, I'll generally use a 20 or a 25x loop, also made by Asco. And uh, they, they all do the job remarkably well. Hmm. Okay. So when I first started out, I had a relatively inexpensive Bosch and Lomb loop and I actually had um, a multiplier that you could put on the front so you could use the same loop. For general work and then then high power and that was I believe was a four X and an eight X and that was pretty good all around setup a good good place to get started.
0: I think it's also important when you're looking at these loops there are two different numbers that you often see you'll often see there there's something like a number four and then you'll see the magnification at um, two and a half times and that number four generally relates to the working distance between mm-hmm. the loop and the object that you're looking at. So a number four is roughly four inches of working distance between it. And that gives you a two and a half times magnification. Uh, whereas something like a 4x magnification it has a working distance of about two and a half inches. And that's that's what you mean when you're talking about the that working distance between you and, and your, uh, your piece.
1: Precisely. And then of course there's microscopes. So working on something like Omega's coaxial escapement, uh, the Amount of lubrication you're applying, which you know, Daniel's maybe rolling in his grave, <laughs> is incredibly small. So you want to be up around forty power, like forty times magnification, when you're you're working on a, a coaxial escapement and uh, applying lubrication there and and verifying uh, the lubricant and and the way that the escapement is, is operating. a microscope comes in handy too for evaluating your your drop and lock on the escapements and examining things that are more difficult to make out with, uh, say, the 20 or the 25 power loop. Because it's actually quite hard. to. (laughs) It takes some getting used to working with these higher power loops because your focal length, your working distance is incredibly small, and it's very easy to to lose (laughs) what you're looking at. Uh, So there's some tips and, and tricks and techniques for working with those loops, a lot of which comes down to hand steadying techniques and and breath holding to be able to work with those loops. And uh, neither of those loops are loops that I'll work with for an extended period of time. It'll be for a few seconds and set it down, grab another part, look at it for a few seconds and take the loop out, set it down and move on. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I find that with the work that I do, I do have a two and a half X magnification, which I don't really use very much. I find that my own eyesight is good enough for most things. If I, that if I was going to use a two and a half X magnification, I would just rather not use a a loop at all. Uh, So I find for most things, uh, I don't need to use something that low. If I do need magnification, I tend to go straight to a four X loop, just because then I'm, I can actually see what's going on and I'm getting a significant improvement over my own eyesight. I do also have a 5x loop that I use occasionally if I need just that little bit of extra magnification over the four. Uh, but I do find the eye strain on the 5x tends to be um, enough that I don't like using it for long periods of time. So I tend to use the 4x uh, more often than not. Uh, I do use a 10x loop occasionally, although that tends to be when I'm working on the lathe and or the uh, straight line engine or the rose engine. And in that case, I'm not actually using it. Traditionally, I'm not holding it in my eye and actually using it. I'm holding it in a, a loop holder that's mounted on the machine, and I can then use it as a sort of magnification uh, with the workpiece that I'm that I'm working on. And uh, that 10x magnification is usually enough for the work that I'm doing uh, with with that stuff on sort of a regular basis. Uh, beyond that, I, I do have. I think I've got a 15 and a 20x loop around, and I they drive me crazy to use that this very, very small working distance and the very tiny focal distance, focal plane that you're working in is just maddening for me. Uh, So I tend not to use them very much. And if I need to go beyond 10x, I tend to get out my microscope. Uh, I've got a variable microscope that goes from seven to 40 times magnification. And that tends to be where I go from there if I, if I need more than that. And uh, I also have the advantage of my microscope being hooked up to a monitor, so that I don't necessarily need to look through the microscope itself. I can also work on the monitor, which is nice too, because then I can see stuff in in ultra large, you know, image and um, and be able to see things a little bit uh, clearer that way.
1: Yeah, I find the monitor is great for inspection. I personally find it challenging to to try and work under a microscope looking at a monitor. Is that, is that something you do do? Do you have any tips or techniques that way?
0: I do use the monitor to work under a microscope occasionally. And uh, now I'm, I have a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to using a, a binocular microscope or a stereo microscope because my eyes can't actually focus together through a stereo microscope. Uh, my left eye is off slightly about 15 degrees. And so I can't actually look through a stereo microscope properly. Uh, so I don't get the advantage of the depth of field that you get when working through a stereo microscope. So for me, I've learned how to use how to use these microscopes without any kind of depth of field uh, or depth perception, which is what you're getting on the screen. You don't get any depth perception when you're when you're looking at it on a screen because it's just from a, a single source image. And uh, there are a few techniques that you sort of figure out in terms of how to judge relative distances of an object and as it's moving in and out of the. Um, uh, sort of the focal plane. So I tend to use the focal plane as a guide of where something is in relation to other things. And, uh, so there's a few tricks that you can learn with that. And also I find if you watch me working on them, you'll see me turning the piece a lot so that I'm looking at it from a slightly different angle than like, let's say straight on and, um, and it makes it easier to see where things are going in terms of, um, of how far away they are from other things. And again, the the combination of something being at an angle and looking at that very thin focal plane, you can start to get a sense of where things are and you don't actually need to have uh stereo vision to be able to do things properly and get, you know, you can do it without that uh, sort of proper depth perception.
1: And while you're unfortunately not able to take advantage of what a stereo microscope has to offer, I think it is worthwhile pointing out that when we're referring to microscopes, we are referring to stereo microscopes, oh, yeah, not the... Yeah the monocular microscopes that one may be familiar with from high school science and and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. And, and there are some, there's some inexpensive stereo microscopes or trinocular microscopes out there. Mine's a trinocular stereo microscope that I found. Uh, You can get some at a very reasonable price. They're not, you know, super high end. They're not as nice as some of the, the really high end ones, but you know, a high end microscope is going to cost you a couple thousand dollars. Uh, but you don't need to spend that on a microscope to get something that's usable for this. Uh, You know, I think I spent maybe $400 on my microscope and it's totally serviceable. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have a fiber optic light for it so I can illuminate things easily. And as I said, I can mount a a camera on mine and be able to get uh, images onto a screen or even to capture. So if I want to be able to add a video of magnified movements to uh to some of the the videos that i'm working on it's easy enough for me to be able to do that as well
1: yeah a nice leica a stereo microscope will easily <laughs> set you back 10 times that
0: oh yeah yeah absolutely
1: cost saving measure two i also have a, a fiber optic light source but these are they tend to be quite expensive uh, you can get led light rings these days that are both compact and quite cheap compared to a fiber optic light ring
0: absolutely yeah, I've, I was fortunate I was able to pick up a surplus fiber optic light ring uh, from a place locally, and uh, I, I really lucked out on that, and I just needed to make a an adapter to fit onto my particular microscope. But you're right, the the LED light rings that are out there now are very, very good. They're adjustable in intensity, they're very consistent in terms of their color quality, and uh, they're excellent for, for this kind of work, so... I certainly recommend getting a, even an, an inexpensive microscope and light ring for doing the very, very fine detailed work. And if there's a way for you to be able to project it onto a screen, then um, it, it's it's an interesting way of looking at, uh, at work. And sometimes it gives you uh, a better view of what it is that you're trying to do. Uh, you have a better context of what's going on and you're not sort of worrying about uh, sticking your face up to the microscope at the same time. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.